0: talk today about uh, the refuges, taking refuge, and the process of taking refuge. Is there anyone here who's really new to the practice and has never uh, taken the refuges? Okay. I always loved the phrase, take the refuges, I remember my gosh, anybody remember the fire sign theater? The line about we threw an I Ching out the window. Um, take the refuges. Um, the refuges are, are considered uh, the three jewels of Buddhism in many circles. Uh, the, the three of them are the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And taking the refuges, like taking the precepts, uh, is a matter of. Usually in a ritual um, setting, we recite polyphrases. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And we do that three times each, and often that's pretty much as far as we get. In retreats, usually we we take the refuges and we take the precepts, and I've I've. And often we don't really give a lot of thought to what, what these things are and what we're doing uh, with them. And so what I'd like to do today is to, just to explore some of that. Uh, because in a, in a very real sense, um, what brings us, what makes us followers of the path is our relationship to the, to the, uh, to the refuges. And the word refuge, just to start, the word refuge is, uh, I suppose we have an idea of what it means, but we're in this particular context, refuge, refuge from what? You know, it's not that nobody recognizes the stress of life. There's a Bruce Springsteen stong- song I particularly like. Um, says that the times are tough now just getting tougher this old world is rough it's just getting rougher cover me come on baby cover me I'm looking for a lover who will come on in and cover me this whole world is out there just trying to score I've seen enough I don't want to see anymore from the dissatisfaction in the world we're looking for a refuge from the disappointment Uh, The the unsatisfactoriness that's that's built into our lives, the first noble truth, that it comes with the territory. Um, And of course we try to fix it. And we we have this undying hope that we could. And we even project the dissatisfaction. We don't take it personally. We say, well, more or less, I guess I'm sort of okay, but the world is really a mess. Which is really projecting that dissatisfaction out on the world. Um, and, And what would a refuge be? Where would be a place of safety? You know, in Hawaii, is it on the Big Island? Have any of you been to the City of Refuge on the Big Island? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really tiny, but but it was a, I guess, as beautiful as Hawaii was. It was pretty brutal to live there under the uh, old culture. If your shadow passed over the shadow of the king, that was a capital offense. And unless you could make it to the City of Refuge, the City of Refuge, what is about? as I recall, maybe, what, 50 yards square? Is that about right? Right on the water? And you know, there's a low fence, who knows how, what, how high it was at the time, but it's a rock fence, and if you can get inside there, you're, you're safe, and that's as long as you stay there. Um, it doesn't change the world around at all, but it makes you, it makes you safe. we think of refuges, people look for refuge in all kinds of things. I mean, the list of things, you know, from, oh my gosh, from work to alcohol or drugs to TV or, or some kind of you know, sensual indulgences that become out of control. Addiction becomes a... Uh, habitual form of, you know, trying to find safety, refuge in some kind of activity, because we're looking for, we're looking for a lover who will come on in and cover me. So, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, we're looking for refuge from, <coughs> from dukkha, from the dissatisfaction disappointment. And it's all its all of our lots. So, taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, which is, is generally identified as the teachings of the Buddha, or the Sangha, which is the community, well we'll talk about what kind of community it is, but it's generally the, the community of the dharma. How would, how is this a refuge? I take refuge in the Buddha. What does that mean? Who, who do you think the Buddha was? I bet you each of us has a slightly different vision. You know, we don't have a huge amount of information about his life. There is a there is a lot in the Pali Canon, and there's certainly plenty been written about it. Any of you see the PBS thing last week on it? I thought generally thought it was really nice, although, you know, the Buddha's born out of his mother's side, and she dies three days later. No kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and there, there are miraculous birth stories and, you know, stories of... All kinds of miracle elements to the Buddha's story, um, but most of the stories we have are, are uh, hagiographies. They're like the lives of the saints. They're like, they're illustrative accounts of incidents in the Buddha's life that are intended to teach some kind of spiritual story truth. So we don't know a whole lot about him. We have you know, the, the the myths, there are certainly the myths. Um, but anybody who's played the game of telephone knows what happens over, I don't know, a dozen people. It doesn't take long to figure out what kind of distortions could happen over 2,500 years. Um, but what, not just who was the Buddha, but what did he accomplish? What is it? How do you understand what the Buddha attained? What his awakening, enlightenment, whatever word you apply. Really each of us has a different a different notion. Um, the Buddha himself, he referred to himself as the Tathagata. Well, I'm, I'll am Translated as literally or generally as it is, I'm not sure it'll help. The thus gone. Thus gone. Thus gone. Is that, <laughs> you know, I, I, maybe you had to be there. Um, <laughs> You know who who was he? And there's this there's a sequence in The King and I where um, in the musical The King and I where there's a, a dance sequence in the middle and it's set around uh, um, it, Eliza running from Simon the Gre you know Uncle Tom's cabin and she Eliza comes to this river and uh, she can't get across it and so she in, in the in the musical, and this was their vision of the Buddha, she prays to the Buddha and the Buddha freezes the the water so she can get across and escape to, to freedom. You know, sort of a, a uh, sort of a Christian kind of Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> oh. There are a lot of people who who maintained that he was omniscient, knew everything. And that's interesting because at the time, you know, my guru is better than your guru. Yeah, well, my guru knows everything. Oh, well, my guru knows everything, too. And, you know. The Buddha said he was just like us, really, just like us. And he said, I mean, just like us. We're, you know. We we put him out there as someone who attained something what that was, that's unattainable. It's a lot of talk in Dharma circles about how awakening and Nibbana, you know, often some future lives, you know, we're maybe not this lifetime, but have you heard that kind of stuff. You know, we're we're not going to. The Buddha said he you know he was like us and he was able to accomplish it and we could too. And actually, we have the benefit of him pointing the way, because, you know. but what, what actually did he accomplish? How do you understand that? You know, there's so many descriptions, um, there's so many descriptions of, of him and who he, he managed to complete the, the fulfillment of all the perfections, the ten perfections. He came to the end of suffering. Um, what other what other things? Uh, what other things do you think he? You know, in, in, he was able to see things as they are, without the clouds of greed, hatred, and delusion intervening. Sometimes you don't understand how that works. There's an Indian aphorism that I particularly like, which goes when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. You see what you're looking for, what's what you're, you know, what's, what's there in your intentions. How could the Buddha be a, a, a refuge? So I, as I think about it, it occurs to me that the Buddha, as a refuge, is just a. It's, the refuge is the the idea we have of what relief from suffering means. That there is something that is possible. That a refuge is in fact possible. That a resolution to the problems, uh, to the problem of human suffering that the Buddha set out to solve is possible, he said. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to to pursue it. And what kind of a teacher was he? You know, there's, there's a um, tendency to sometimes to take his teachings and he said, "Regard them as a raft. Don't cling to them. Use them as a tool." I've been recently thinking of him. Um, oh, I hate to say, as a realtor, but um, <laughs> maybe, maybe as a docent might be a little bit uh, a more, a little bit more helpful. But you know, you you go with the realtor to a house, and they say, "And there's the." There's the swimming pool and look on the roof, the solar panels and there's the granite counter and here's, you know, the four, but you're expected to look, you know, you're expected to, to check it out yourself and to, to examine what they're pointing at. And the same, the same with the Buddha, you know, he was asked once, do all of your followers achieve the end of suffering? And he said, well, his response was, well, do you know the road to Gaia? Do you know how to get to Gaia? I said, yeah. He said, well, everybody that you tell how to get to Gaia, do they all get there? Well, only if they follow the path. <laughs> and the Buddha said, just so. You know. So he would point, and we were, we were expected to Look for ourselves," he said. "It was possible to to reach to achieve a cessation of the the suffering, of the dissatisfaction that we live with. And in this sense, you know, there is some value to study. There's often, you know, a sense that all you have to do is sit and meditate, and Enlightenment will will come, but there is, there is a, a sense in which listening to the Buddha or studying uh, his teaching some helps you know where to look you know? um, and here's the utility room, and this is the nature of suffering, and here's the you know practice, the precepts and uh, um, you know and then he would say. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. <clears throat> and how do we hold that when we think of those whom we regard with Dispision, Or whatever that word is in a noun form. So... The refuge in the Buddha is the refuge in the notion, as you understand it. However, you understand the Buddha's awakening, and it will change as your as your study and practice deepens. You may have noticed that already. what What were his What were his teachings? Refuge in the Dhamma, in the teachings of the Buddha. In a most. Most simply, the Buddha said, don't make things worse. Try to make things better and cultivate your mind so you know how to do that. But there, is, there isn't a lot of labeling in spiritual teaching the way there is on the food packages. You know, this is 70% Buddha Dharma, 20% uh, uh, Vedanta, Christianity and there's no labeling like that. And so there are a lot of things that get mixed in. In fact you know the Buddha taught in a culture that was very different from ours and a lot of the assumptions that existed at the time that were just second nature were built in uh, to the assumptions about the way things worked. Same way we, we build in a kind of scientism you know, some empirical, uh, scientific. So what, what what were the Buddhist teachings that were unique? Stephen Bashler was here recently. Anybody get a chance to uh, see him? He's really quite remarkable. His recent book is uh, titled Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. Or actually, it's a confession of a Buddhist atheist. And... There's a, there's a little interview with him in the current issue of Tricycle. He has made an effort over the years to try to distinguish what elements in the, in the Pali Canon were elements that the Buddha added to the spiritual discussion and what ones were already there or taught by other people or, and to set those aside. And to look just at what the Buddha added as unique and he had uh, he came up with four things the first is is the principle of self-reliance and we go for that a lot it, it resonates with us uh, when when the um, When he came to town, there's a story where he came to town, uh, the the land of the Kalamas, and and they said to him, Well, uh, welcome Bante, but you know, we had a guy here last week and the week before and almost every succeeding, preceding week and people will be coming and each one comes and says, my way is the right way and everybody else is deluded. Why should, we, why should we listen to you? Why should we take your word? And he said, you're, you're quite right to, to be doubtful. You're quite right to question. He said, you shouldn't listen to me just because I say it. And he said things like, don't go by what's written in Scripture. He said, don't go by tradition. Don't go by logical reasoning and what you figure out. He said, when you know in your heart that what you're going to do, that something you're about to do will be for the benefit of yourself or others, and or others, then do it. And when you know in your heart that something you're about to do will be for the detriment of yourself or others, don't do it. Only you know. There's no bright line here. It's when you know in your heart. And you know you can you can have a he's talking about your intention here because in, because you can know in your heart you're going to make a, a good faith wholehearted effort to do something and it can fail and you 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 know you can't know that something is actually going to pay off the way you intend it to pay off but the issue is your intention the intention you bring. Don't go by what's written in scripture. Hmm. His last words. His last words were, um, "Be a light unto yourself." Or actually, my understanding, although I forgot to study Pauli in any formal way, um, my understanding is that the word could also, depending on how it's inflected, could also be translated as "be an island unto yourself." A similar kind of meaning, but to but to. It's not so much what other people are doing, but know your own intention, what you're doing. So if you do that, what do we what do we set aside? You know. There are a lot of things in the canon that are that are there. There's all of this stuff about past lives and reincarnation and. Rebirth, and unless you are sitting on a treasure trove, a memory treasure trove of past lives, when we take on some notion about, um, you know, a never-ending succession of rebirths, on the basis of some other external authority, somebody's telling us, we're hearing it from somebody, it's written in the canon. Don't go by scripture, he says. Look to yourself, you know. And then there's the the issue of all of the all of the concentration states, the exotic jhana. Attainments. These were not things that he particularly invented. In fact, he, in the beginning uh, of his search, he he studied with some meditation masters, and <coughs> is reported to have mastered all of the you know, the four lower jhanas and the immaterial jhanas as well. And they were truly wonderful, but then he had to open his eyes and he found himself back in the land of Dukkha. And he said, this is not it. There, you know, the, the Pali Canon, if you've, I if you've, <coughs> hate to say thumbed through it, but <laughs> you've taken a look. If you've peeked in there, there's, there's some boilerplate language that shows up a lot about the jhanas. But these were not, these were not his particular... Uh, teaching, All, although there are people who maintain it. You know, and there is uh, what Gil Fransdahl likes to refer to as the jhana wars. You know, you know, jhana heavy, jhana light, and you know, the jhana is the only practice. I mean, there are people who say if it's not jhana practice, it's not Buddhism. But Bachelor points out that the, this is the second thing that, that the Buddha particularly it was, was his, was the mindfulness practice that we do. You know, mindfulness practice, which he outlined in the Satipatthana Sutta and said, was the direct way to liberation. Um, The word word in Pali is sati, S-A-T-I, sati. And it comes, the derivation of that word uh, comes from uh, a verb which means to recollect, to remember, and in a in a very real sense, we are, you know, mindfulness is about remembering to be attentive to what's present. You know, I just love Joseph Goldstein's comment about how. Mindfulness is not hard to do, but remembering to be mindful is hard to do. It's hard to do when you sit down and close your eyes with the intention to stay mindful of your breathing. Even, even then, when you focus and sit and... Anybody... Isn't that your experience too? You know? I, um, but being able to recollect, to be present, to notice just what our, what our experience is in the present moment. And sometimes we get confused about, you know, where it's it's. I mean, the breath is is a focus, it's an anchor. And often we 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 work with our intention, with our focus, mindfulness of the body and movement, but it includes all aspects of our experience. You know, the moth flies into the flame. Ajahn Jungnian likes to talk about the moth flying into the flame. You know, When we are captivated by the desire for an object, like the moth, we only see the object. The moth, the moth sees the light. It's the only thing that's bright. Everything else is dark, but what it's not seeing is its own compulsion to move to the flame. So we can be mindful, but not just of the objects of, that are in our mind, but also of our own reaction to them and the, the compulsion, the that arises, the, the response, the reactivity that arises. We're talking about presence, presence of mind, bringing the mind and the body to the same place, rather than being absent-minded, absent, the mind is somewhere else, often la-la land. Um, It's a particularly important element in the in the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, It's the first. It's the first element to cultivate. Um, It's part of the Eightfold Path and the factors of uh, the spirit, the five spiritual factors, it's the one that's balanced. It's the one, it said you can't have too much mindfulness. You have too much energy. You can be so absorbed in concentration insight doesn't arise. But mindfulness is, is balanced between the energetic uh, uh, responses and the calming concentrated responses. The Buddha says all things can be accomplished by mindfulness mindfulness is necessary to practice the precepts it's necessary to see clearly it involves it involves all of our practice and it's of course something that we do ourselves we see clearly for ourselves this self-reliance it fits completely with that you know if the buddha walked in the door right now and said you know all that stuff about the noble truths and mindful I was just kidding (laughs) you might say well all right for you but you know I've noticed some of this and uh, I've got my my experience you know through direct experience Mm -hmm. the third of the elements that the Buddha that that uh, Stephen identifies as as unique to the is the structure of the Four Noble Truths. There are a lot of metaphors that talk about the structure of the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is just is is uh, um, and actually you know interesting. Uh, some scholars like to they they balk a little bit at the at the use of the phrase noble truths they say actually it's not that the truths are noble but they are ennobling to see them and understand them and to relate to them can be ennobling and the first is the recognition that dissatisfaction dukkha and you know Suffering, as is translated, unsatisfactoriness, disappointment, that comes with life. And the second is that the cause is grasping at things that cannot be, trying to make things permanent, satisfactory, and lasting. But the third, the third truth, is the truth that it's possible cessation is possible and how we understand that is it's like our refuge in the Buddha this is the the salvation if that word applies in this context and we skip over it a lot it's brushed by frequently but the Buddha said it was possible and the fourth truth is the truth of the path to the cessation of, of tanha, of, of craving, of grasping, of suffering. And <clears throat> often these four truths are, the, the metaphor that's, that's often applied that you may have heard is, you know, it's like, the, it's, uh, it's a medical model for the time. The first, the first truth is uh, the diagnosis, dukkha, and The second truth is the, the, uh, the cause of the illness, which is tanha, crave, thirst, uh, craving. And the fourth is, uh, um, the the third the third truth is the prognosis, which is that healing is possible. And the fourth is the medicine. But Stephen says that it's interesting that. You can proceed through these four truths recognizing that each one is conditioned by the preceding one. So that first it's important to recognize dukkha. We don't see it so much because we often, like I said earlier, we often project it out onto the world. We think the world is a mess. We're sort of okay, but the world is a mess. Of course, what we think is a mess, somebody else might think is just perfect. Ah, but global warming. Well, yeah. but we're, what's going on here is that our dissatisfaction with the way things are is projected out onto the onto the onto the world. We think it's something that inheres out there in global warming, in the way people, well. However, we account for global warming, or whether we account for it. There may be, there are some people who think that it's a hallucination. Uh, They wouldn't use it that way. But you know, people who think that it's a politically motivated effort to bring industry under control of government, I guess. If I'm misstating, if there's anyone here who feels I'm misstating your position. (laughs) But, you know, given the way things are and have been, what would you expect? This is, this is just how things are. And our dissatisfaction with them is pro- projected out onto the world, so we don't even notice the dissatisfaction. So-and-so is, is a so-and-so. I think that We don't even relate. To, it's like the moth and the flame. We're not noticing our own response. So the first truth is to recognize deeply the dissatisfaction. Once we can see clearly how deeply that goes in our experience, we can see you know, the causes. The grasping at permanence, the efforts to make things be pleasant. Always get rid of the unpleasant, make things pleasant. And when we can see those more clearly, we can see our way to the, to the cessation, to the letting go. And then we can enter the Eightfold Path. To, an, to the extent that we are able to enter the Eightfold Path, it depends on putting aside some of our own immediate impulses to restrain our speech, our action, to practice mindfulness, um, and to acknowledge that impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, are um, built in. So each of, the, each of the, the truths conditions the succeeding one. Actually, the bachelor points out that in some places in the canon, the Buddha describes stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, as Practicing the path, practicing the eightfold path. You know, it's really the Buddha's, um, the Buddha's prescription. And the the fourth item that the Buddha proposed that was unique to him was the was dependent origination, which includes the the realization of the interdependence of everything. Nothing left out. In in a very and this is anatta, which is often it includes anatta, which is often very difficult to understand. It's, a, it's the one challenging thing <laughs> Sylvia said that the first time that she heard the three characteristics of our experience: unsatisfa- um, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. She said, "Well, two out of three is not bad, but I know I'm here." <laughs> Nobody isn't saying, no, you're, you're not here. He's saying it's not what you think. Everything, because everything is interdependent, intercausally related, you say, well, this is my body, but the air in your lungs, the oxygen in your blood, in the tissues, comes from somewhere else. Where's the line? You know, the water that makes up your body may have come from an apple that grew in Washington that was watered by rain that came from China that where's the line there is no line anywhere everything is in process there is no thing that is not in change the elements that make up this pen 50 years ago they weren't pen and in another 50 years they probably won't be pen again either so is this a pen it's a process we are like a stream you know the 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 very elements of our bodies are different from what they were years ago if you try to remember if you try to think of what in your personality is the same as when you were 10 you might find it difficult to think of anything except that you called yourself by the same name you know Um, we are we are like a a stream there is nothing permanent anywhere and in fact there are no things anywhere there is only process and that is a a unique the fourth of the unique contributions of the Buddha the refuge of the Dharma is the (laughs) refuge that there is of the path of the practice the Buddha lays out the map and he gives some instructions for the way to achieve the liberation that you understand he achieved. So taking refuge in the Dharma is to take refuge in the practice of the path of the Buddha outlined. There are some things that are not the Dharma um, that get passed along um, that were prevalent at the time, present at the time, you know and the Vedanta of the Buddha's time included the notion that there was a spirit and entity and essence that permeated the entire cosmos, Brahman and you know the metaphor you may have heard it taught in 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 uh, Dharma scenes about you know the, the ocean of being and we are but waves on the ocean and we appear as waves and then we return to the ocean from which mirrored that metaphor. You know, that's not the Buddhist Dharma. You know, that's that's Brahmanical. This essence, this transcendent unity of all things. that's permanent, that's not impermanent, that's not unsatisfactory, that is a self or an entity. It's not the Buddhist teaching. But it sort of seeped in because it was part of the time and, it, and the people who were transmitting it was as much a part of the culture than as the scientism that we live with. Not a lot of devotional practice in the Dharma. You know, not a lot in the Buddha's, in the Pali Canon, in the Buddha's teachings. He just didn't want people to make him an object of veneration. In fact, uh, my understanding is, although I haven't found it in the canon, that he requested that there not be images made of him, which is why there weren't for hundreds of years after his death. The Buddha was represented by footprint. Footprint, um, or by a dharma wheel, you know, other symbols that represented him, but not himself. Devotional practice was not something he talked about. And the Sangha, refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha is, in some sense, a community. Another metaphor that's used in regard to the, to the uh, refuges is that the Buddha was the doctor, and the Dharma was the medicine, and the Sangha is the nurse. Sangha is the community. Well, what is the Sangha? There, originally, perhaps originally, or at some point, there are people who maintain that the Sangha was the community of the fully awakened beings, the Arhats, who were around the Buddha. Now, there were 499 of them until the day of the first council and then Ananda became one. And so there were 500 even, I guess. Mm -hmm. They all wore little name tags and said, you know, awakened being um, and there are people who maintain that then there then you know the meaning of Sangha is uh, still today thought of in some places as the community of those in robes the monastics there's a retreat that I go I've been going to for years and years down in uh, Vajrapani <clears throat> down in the Santa Cruz mountains it's a Tibetan monastery And in the meal line, there's a little card that sits on the post as you're waiting for line. It says, out of respect, we serve sangha first. And under sangha, it says those in robes. Sangha is, for some, sangha is the community of the monastics. And then sort of we have this notion that uh, um, we refer to this as our sangha people who come and practice together and work together and study together Um, what is the sangha well it's like the Buddha it's your idea. what do you think you know I I tend to have um, a lot more social sciences in my background so I I've got in, in my mind it's I think of it as the culture of awakening and so it includes not just the behaviors and the people, but the artifacts as well. My wife has a, uh, an internet friend. When you live most of your life on the internet, it doesn't matter where these people live. She has a friend who lives in Australia who's very just on the edge of the outback, and she, she's homebound as well. And she listens to the dharma talks of jack and gill and sylvia on the internet and she orders books and you know these are cultural artifacts that are supporting her practice so sangha i I see sangha more broadly as um, a culture that supports our awakening however we understand that awakening and like i say each of us has a different um, a different a, a different understanding so we take refuge in the buddha and the dharma and refuge in the sangha is refuge in the culture of awakening what what enables us to awaken there's a classic exchange between ananda who was the buddha's attendant and and the Buddha, and they're standing on, on a mound looking out over thousands of monks. I always wonder how he could teach thousands of monks without a bullhorn. <laughs> but thousands of monks are out there and Ananda says to the Buddha, this is pretty important, Sangha. must be half of the practice. And the Buddha says, don't, don't say that, Ananda. It's the entire practice. It's the context in which we practice. The people we relate to who support our work with the precepts, who support our efforts to awaken, and uh, aren't necessarily saying, well, it's, uh, it's, it's been a hard day on the meditation cushion, let's go have a drink. <laughs> no, it's the people who support our efforts to awaken and to live in a way that's, that's more supportive of what we know we can do. Taking refuge in the precepts is often done as a ritual kind of activity. We, some, some people, as part of their practice, will, will uh, in the morning reflect, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And as, that, as, as such, it can be a mindfulness practice, helping us recall just what we're doing and what we, what we think we're working at. because this kind of of a repetitive practice depends on the intention that you bring to it. It's karmic in the Buddhist sense. It depends on your intention. And it helps us remember because it's easy. It's hard to remember uh, to practice and, and what our practice is about. So what I'd like to do at the at, as a conclusion, there's often the way the way the precepts are affirmed um, is through a repetitive thing where we we all speak out loud and recite a formula. I'd like to do it in a slightly different way, in a more meditative way, um, with maybe. You can, uh, and just in a reflective way, each of us individually. So you can close your <laughs> eyes or not, <laughs> as you prefer. And just reflect for a moment on your own need for refuge. What refuge would mean for you? What it would be like if you had the wisdom and the insight of a Buddha? How would that insight greet the world? Greet your experience. Seeing without clinging. Those things that are pleasant, without asking that they remain knowing what is unpleasant without asking that they leave. (coughs) What kind of refuge is the Buddha's awakening for you? What practices do you reach for in an effort to arrive at that awakening? How do we depend? on ourselves, and where do we reach for help from others? Refuge in the Dharma and the Buddha's teachings, and his recommendations, his description of the road to Gaia, the path to awakening? In our lives, how do we practice? Can we recognize the obstacles and know where our work is cut out? Refuge in the culture of our awakening and the people we know and the studies we undertake. What inspires our practice? Who inspires our practice? What resources that are available in this culture of awakening are underexploited, underused by you? collect your intention, and regard the refuges together. Taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Sangha, taking refuge in the Dharma. Well, let me invite any questions or comments or thoughts about, uh, please. Um, I have part A and part B. Part A is did the Buddha talk about reincarnation and B, if he did, I'm having trouble putting the idea of reincarnation together with the idea that me and this blanket and the floor are all processed. So what reincarnates? That's that's a great question. When you ask that question, my return question would be, what makes you think something does? I'm not. I'm not convinced that it does, except except the that there's all this chatter in the in the in the canon. Yeah. Well, you know there. Th- There are some scholars who think the Buddha didn't subscribe to notions of reincarnation. That the discussions about it that are in the canon, and the Buddha does talk about it in the canon, um, reflected the cultural understandings of the time that were so deeply embedded, like we know about molecules and atoms, and they didn't. They had a vision of you know multiple births, lifetimes, in you know, and that would creep into the over time. It's hard to imagine. We don't. We played telephone, you know, uh, as much as people might want to um, pass on the Buddha's teachings in as pristine a manner as possible. Some of that's bound to creep in. There are places in the canon I. Uh, there's a, a great place um, in the Majima where there's a description of the uh, awakened man, the great man, and it's got the 37 features, and he's got legs like an antelope, and you know his hands reach to his <laughs> knees. And I mean, the, you think, holy jumping! What you know? What's wrong with that guy? Um, So there's stuff that's in the canon that's not that you would look at and and pretty much see as added later. There were changes. There have been changes that have been made. And so some of that story might be, but the Buddha said, don't go by scripture. Go by your knowledge of your own heart. It's not so much an epistemological free-for-all, whatever you think is fine. He's not giving you license to think whatever you want. He's saying, know what goes on in your heart, your intention. You can know, and when it is going to be, when it's causing pain, you will know, if you take the time to pay attention. So, you in know, in, you you can believe in reincarnation or not. But Buddha said that kind of speculation is beside the point. Coming to an end of suffering is the point. Big deal in it's a very big deal in Tibetan Buddhism it's a very big deal if you don't you know if it's it, if you don't have experience of it yourself then you can take someone else's word for it or not but if you know that you're angry it's kind of hard for someone to say, you're not really angry. It's, it's really okay. You're not, you know, that doesn't work. You don't, you don't really want that cookie, you say to it. I say to my eight-year-old granddaughter, good luck. <laughs> you don't really want that doll. Oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> not only do I want that doll, but I want all the ones surrounding it. <laughs> So it, it's a it's a biggie because it's it's you know it comes out of that. But it's, there's no truth in labeling on spiritual practices. So I really like what Stephen did by breaking those things out, and and pointing. He's not saying there's anything wrong with believing. There's nothing wrong with believing in God if you if it is. But the Buddha was not big into consolation. His last words were all well, depending on how you translate it usually is translated all compounded things are subject to change strive on with diligence or as John Peacock likes to he updates the uh, the idiom and he says "Everything's impermanent get on with it (laughs) practice is an opportunity for courage not necessarily the refuge is a refuge from dukkha into freedom and Life. <clears throat> Any other? Uh, anything else? Is that is that helpful, or just well, or more muddy? More no, muddy. No, it is. I'm just <laughs> having trouble with the process and I mean, reincarnation, But well, you're trying to figure it out conceptually, <laughs> trying to trying is to well, understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and you know. There's a sense that if we've got a map of it, it must be true, (laughs) sort of like Middle Earth. It's got to be somewhere. (laughs) The map is not the territory. We came to that in the 20th century. Uh, What is it, semantics, first law of general semantics, the map is not the territory, just because we have an idea about it. And then there's a real issue about this you know the unity unified spirit that underlies all things if our sensory life is unrelentingly transient with no sense data coming in that stays the same you know, how would we even know we were we were encountering something that would be permanent we, how would we recognize it? Is it good feeling? Well, of course, yeah. Gotta be. Is it bad? Is it, you know, how would we know? So it's not something that we could even know. But it says if you can't know it, you can speculate about it till the cows come home. They had cows. I don't think they came home. <laughs> you had to go round them up. Anything else? Well, thank you guys for your attention. see you next week. Next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.